amazing to me to think about how the Lord, he listens to the prayers of his people. Each of us can be praying individually, simultaneously, anytime, anywhere through Christ, and he listens, he cares. He's faithful and he's true and he's kind and he's trustworthy. That's the God that you have access to, the one who made all things and knows all things. He cares about you and he cares about your life and he cares when you pray. You know, one of the thrills of many parents and grandparents is seeing their children and grandchildren proceed through different developmental steps and growth patterns. One of my favorite stages is age five. Because at age five, children will have this voice that is just so precious. And so when my son, Nathan, was five years old, I recorded his voice and I wanted to give you all a chance to hear it because it's so precious. This is what he sounded like at age five. I love you, Daddy. I love you, Daddy. I mean, isn't that fantastic? Like, I just love it. It's so good. Well, when my kids were young, Christy and I, we taught our kids catechisms. Now, a catechism is a theological truth that is couched in a question and answer format. So we would ask our kids, who made you? Well, they would say, God. What else did God make? Everything. Why did God make everything? For his own glory. And it was so great hearing them recite back to us truths about God and his gospel. Well, when my son Aiden was five, he still had a thick Ethiopian accent. And there were some letters that he couldn't pronounce. And so when we would do catechisms, there were times in which he would speak and it just did not sound right, but it was like so cute. Like, please keep talking. This is fantastic. And so one of the questions in the, in the catechism was, how many persons are in the Godhead? And he would say, there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three are one God, same in essence, equal power, glory. Now they go, like, oh, it's so good. Yes, you nailed it. So what we're going to do is, y'all, we are going to say a catechism together, okay? So I'm gonna put it up on the screen. I'm gonna ask the question, and then together we are going to recite back the answer together, okay? So I'm gonna ask the question, and then we're gonna say it together. Now, just do not use your five-year-old voice, okay, Randy? So let's just speak with our normal, normal voices. So, hey, Doug, can you throw it up there? And it's kind of hard for y'all to see in the back. Oh, I was kind of hoping that'd be bigger. Okay, here, let me just read it for you. And then for those of you who can't read it, don't worry about it. The question is this, how many persons are in the Godhead? There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three are one God, the same in essence, equal in power and glory. Yes, excellent, good job. And that is truth. There is indeed one God. We've learned this from the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is one God. And yet simultaneously, as we look throughout the canon of scripture, we see that God reveals himself in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three are one God, the same in essence, equal in power and in glory. Now, what's interesting is that we see within the Godhead, the Trinity, 
Now, though that word Trinity never shows up in the Bible, we do see the character and essence of God as he reveals himself from Genesis to Revelation. And as we see this Godhead, we see how he relates within himself in perfect communion and relationship. Well, this morning, what we're going to see from the text of Scripture is that we were made to relate like him. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. We're finishing up our sermon series as a faith family called Imago Dei, which means the image of God. We've been studying these two verses for three weeks of Genesis 1, 26 and 27. We saw in part one that we were made to reflect him. We saw in part two that we were made to rule like him. And what we're seeing this morning is that we were made to relate like him. Now, if you've missed any of these sermons, you can go back and listen or watch them on your Westwood app. And so make sure you take time to do that if you've missed any of these sermons. Now, up to this point in Genesis chapter one, we've seen how God has created the world in six days. He made the sky, the sea, the land, the planets and the cosmos. He made the animals and the plants and the fish of the sea. And then his crowning achievement of all of creation, the making of man and woman. Image bearers fashioned by the hand of God with life breathed into us by the mouth of God. And in Genesis, Genesis chapter one, verse 26, scripture says this, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. You see, as image bearers, we were made to reflect God. We were made to rule like God. But as we see here in the text, we were made to relate like God. What does that look like both biblically and practically? I'll put these in your notes. I want you to see, see first that as image bearers, we were made to live in unity and harmony. In unity and harmony. Look at how God reverses himself in plurality in verse 26. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. This is not the only time in which God refers to himself in plurality. Two chapters later, at the end of chapter three, we see where God refers to himself in the plural in which he says, man has become like one of us. In Genesis chapter 11, we see where God sees the sin happening as the men, uh, men and women of the world were making this big tower. And he says, let us go down there. In Isaiah chapter six, Isaiah gets a glimpse into the throne room of God. He sees God high and exalted, seated upon his throne. The train of his robe fills the temple. Above him were seraphim, angels, who had six wings. With, with six, excuse me, with two they covered their face and with two they covered their feet and with two they flew. And they cried out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then God goes and atones for Isaiah's sin by taking uh, tongs from the altar and touching his lips and cleaning him and purging him of sin so that he can be in the presence of God. And then God asks the question, 
Who's gonna go and preach the gospel to my people? He says, who will go for us? We see God reveal himself as one God, but as three persons within the Godhead. In verse 26, we see communion and consultation among the members of the Trinity. Warren Wiersbe calls it a divine deliberation. You see, when it came to the making of man as an image bearer, all three persons within the Godhead consulted together, verse 26, and they decided to make man in the image of God. Man was made to relate with one another similar to how God relates within himself. Don't miss this. God is a happy God. And within the Godhead, there is perfect unity and perfect oneness between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is no backbiting. There is no gossip or slander within the Trinity. You don't see the Son and the Spirit working behind the scenes, having secret meetings, trying to figure out how they can take down the Father. No, you see perfect unity and harmony within the Godhead. We see this demonstrated in the work and ministry of Jesus. He says in John 14 to Philip, he says, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Therefore, since God is a God of unity and harmony, we strive to be like him, to bring unity in our relationships. 11 times in the Apostle John's writings, he uses the phrase, love one another. Jesus said in Mark 9, 50, be at peace with one another. You see, as image bearers, we were made to live in unity and harmony with one another, especially as believers within a local church. You know, one of God's good, good gifts to our church, Westwood as a faith family, is unity and harmony and joy. It's a gift that God has given to us. And it's something that as a pastor, I, I seek to protect us from any division. I want us to stay together for the gospel. You see, there's beauty and there's power in local churches when we're together for the gospel, when we focus on making much of Jesus together. What breaks my heart is seeing churches that fight and contend with one another when there's divisions it's robbing God of glory. But when you have people of various ethnicities and backgrounds and perspectives and political ideologies, but we're together for the gospel, that's a picture of the kingdom because we're becoming more like Christ and we're doing it together. What in the world could unite a diverse group like us other than Jesus? That's who he is and that's what he does. David tells us about this in Psalm 133, verse one, a verse that my kids begrudgingly have to quote back when they start fighting with each other. David wrote, how good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. This is how we function as a faith family. We're together. We're united, we're living in unity and in harmony. Why? Because it's a reflection of God himself. There's complete unity and harmony and joy and love within the Godhead. And when believers are united together around the gospel, we are reflecting the unity and harmony of God himself.
But I want you to see, secondly, that as image bearers, we were made to live in joy-filled submission and authority. Joy-filled submission and authority. We see within the Godhead, not only unity and harmony, that we also see submission and authority. You see, when God the Son took on flesh and was born on Christmas morn, he displayed the humility of God. Jesus left the glory, the perfection, and the exaltation of heaven, and he humbled himself by taking on human flesh. He who was rich became poor, so that we who were poor might become rich. He who was all-powerful became weak, so that we who are weak might experience his power. Paul says it like this in Philippians 2.7. He says, instead he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity in his incarnation, by Jesus taking on flesh as God the Son, we see him humbling himself. We see God the Son submitting to God the Father. In John 6, verse 38, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In John 14, 31, Jesus says, I love the Father. I do as the Father commanded me. And on the night when he was betrayed, Jesus prayed in the garden of Gethsemane, not my will but your will be done. And Jesus humbled himself to become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, submission is beautiful. In the person and work of Jesus Christ, God the Son submitted to God the Father. They're the same in essence. They're equal in power and in glory. And yet Jesus models for us what humility and submission looks like. And so when Paul says in Romans 13, that as believers, we are to submit to the governing authorities, we can do so with gladness because we're relating like God. So when Paul says in Ephesians 5, wives, submit to your husbands, you can be glad to do so because you're relating like God himself. So when Paul says in Ephesians 6, for children to obey your parents in the Lord, you can be glad and do so, because you're relating like God himself. So when Paul says in Ephesians 6, uh, for slaves to workers to submit to, to obey their earthly masters, to obey their bosses, you and I can do so, because we're reflecting God himself. When the writer of Hebrews says, in Hebrews 13, says, submit and obey your church leaders, we can do so because we are reflecting what God is like. We see submission and authority within the Godhead himself. And so we were made to live out this joy-filled submission and authority with one another because it is who God is and how he relates to himself in the gospel. So as image bearers, I want you to see thirdly, we were made to live in community with one another. We were made to live in community with one another. We see in verse 26 that within the Godhead, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, they are including one another here. They're working together. 
They're in community. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Verse 26, we see God in a relationship with himself. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now hear me on this. This means that the triune God has never been lonely. Periodically, I'll hear at funerals someone say, well, God needed Joe more than us. God needed Jane. No, he did not. God is self-sufficient. There is no need that he has ever had. He has all that he has and all things belong to him. He has no void that needs to be met. God has never been lonely because we see within the Godhead of the Father and the Son and the Spirit perfect unity and we see community. And since God is communal as three in one, every image bearer as those who have been made by him and for him and like him, every human being is made for relationships. And you see, even unbelievers reflect the reality of chapter one, verse 26. Outside of Christ, unbelievers are looking for community. They'll go to bars and get into gangs and join clubs and go to honky-tonks because they're longing for community. They're longing for relationships. And this is true even for you. Every time you check your phone, you are looking for communal relationship. You're looking for affirmation. You see your social media timelines and text message threads are declaring that Genesis 1:26 is true. You were made to live in community. Isn't it interesting? This fall, many of you are gonna be going to football stadiums. And when your team scores a touchdown, you're going to high five and hug complete strangers. Do you see how weird that is? What's happening? Genesis 1:26. You're showing that you were made for relationships. You long for community. You're showing that you want to connect with one another. You see, no man was made to be an island. No one was made to be a recluse. We were made to relate with one another like him. Now, some of you are introverts. Your favorite card game is solitaire, okay? When you were a kid, you liked timeout. You think solitary confinement sounds like vacation, okay? For some of you, you're sitting here thinking, I just don't want to be around people. Man, I say to you, you were still made for relationships. Now, I'm the exact opposite. The Lord has put within me just this disposition, this personality in which I love people and I get energy from being around large groups of people. It's just the way he made me. A couple times a year, I'll go to a cabin in the woods and I will pray and I will read and I'll take several days in which I'm planning out sermons for six to 12 months in advance. But after a few hours, I get lonely, y'all. <laughs> I go to the Piggly Wiggly just to talk to people, okay? It's crazy. Why do I do that? Genesis 1:26. It's made for relationships, made for community. 
We were made to connect with other people. Deep within the hearts of people is a longing for community. Isn't it interesting that after God made Adam in uh, chapter two, he says in verse 18, it is not good for man to be what? Alone. God then makes for Adam a helpmate, community, an image bearer, a wife and a family. Notice in the text how God made the two image bearers. Verse 27, put your finger on verse 27. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Don't miss the obvious in verse 27. God made two sexes. He made two genders, male and female. This is not complicated or complex. Our culture has gone so far off the deep end to even concoct this preposterous idea that there is anything more than male or female. May I say to you, whatever gender you were born with is what God made for you to be. And he made you that way for his glory. And so as men, we pursue biblical masculinity for the glory of God. As women, you pursue godly biblical femininity for the glory of God. You display his glory through the gender, through the sex that he made you to be. And Jesus affirmed this. In Matthew 19, 4, Jesus said, haven't you read that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? Have y'all noticed in our culture how Satan has attacked Genesis 1, 26 and 27? He has lampooned the biblical definition of marriage, of gender, of sexuality, And he has confused millions of image bearers, leaving them devastated and destroyed in his lies. And so when people experience loneliness, y'all, when people experience despair, and they will, when you do not pursue God's design, we respond with the love of Christ. We respond with a communal response of love. We're gonna respond like Jesus Why? It's because loneliness is a foretaste of hell. And unbelievers experience this in spades. This whole idea of partying with your friends in hell is foreign to Jesus' description of eternal death. You see, we were not made to do life alone. God made us to live in community and with one another. Our response as believers is to speak the truth with love. We respond with both compassion and conviction. We do both, which means teenagers, when you're at the lunchroom and you see someone sitting by themselves, you go and sit down with them. Or better yet, you invite them to come and sit with you at your table. Why? Because Jesus has invited you to sit at his table. He has invited you to come and eat and to live and to dwell with him forever in the gospel. And so that's how we respond. Westwood, here on our campus, we must be diligent in keeping our eyes open, looking for those who are by themselves. 
If someone's sitting by themselves or standing by themselves, we include them. Hey, why don't you come sit, come sit with me? Hey, are you in a life group? Why don't you come to our life group and come hang out with us? What are you doing for lunch today? Why don't you come out to eat with us? You include, you invite. Why? We're a community. The gospel compels us as a faith family to be a people who say, get in here. You can get in on this. The gospel, though it's exclusive, is inclusive to anybody and everybody. Come on, get in here, be a part of this. You can be included. This is how we act as believers because we have a God who is in community within himself. And so what we as a church have to continually be doing is looking outward. The moment that a church looks inward, the moment that a church chooses preference over purpose, the moment that a church says, we're going to be a country club, I'll pay my dues and I'll get what I want, that is the moment God takes his hand off that church. And there's far too many churches filling the landscape of our culture where it's, what can you do for me? Westwood, may that never be our mindset. May we always be looking outward and always be looking upward. This is what healthy community looks like. This is why this year, instead of doing tailgate and fireworks here on campus, although it's a good thing, we want our church looking outward. There's community, there's people in your neighborhood, people in your apartment complex who you need to get to know and build relationships with. And so tonight, my neighborhood, I invited 50 houses to come to the end of the cul-de-sac and we're gonna have a cookout and I wanna get to know some of these people. I wanna build relationships. Why? Because God made them and God made me to live in community as a reflection of himself. And so that's what we want you to do is identify who's living around you and go build a relationship with them and connect with them. In fact, here's the challenge for right here in our campus. I wanna challenge you every Sunday to meet one person you don't know. I mean, some of you are sitting here thinking, that sounds like a terrible assignment. Take it back. No, I won't. I want you to go meet one person you don't know. And let me, let me show you, this is crazy. Here's how you do it. You smile, you stick out your hand and say, hey, my name is, what's yours? Where are you from? What do you like to do? And you start building a relationship. You build connections. You include, you invite Y'all, Westwood's a big church. When you walk on this campus, first time as a visitor, eyes get big. Oh my goodness gracious, this is a monstrosity. But how do you make something big become small? Relationships, community. You start developing these connections with people. And that's what we do as believers. We connect people to one another because we've been connected to God through the gospel. You see, community is a big deal to God because Jesus purchased it with his blood. When he was on the cross, Jesus cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because for the very first time, as Jesus is on the cross, the father turns his back upon the son. You see, Jesus died alone so that you and I, we might one day experience the ultimate community with God himself. If you're not connected with a life group, let me encourage you to do that. In a few moments, we're gonna be dismissed. You can head out into the atrium and go to the information desk and say, I'd be interested in a life group. Can you help me 
We would be glad to do that. Maybe today you're sitting here thinking, I don't have time today. I've got other things I've got to do. On your connect card in your worship guide, pull it out and just put your information and say, I'd be interested in connecting with the life group. When we take up the offering later today, you can drop it in the offering plate or you can drop it off at the information center and we'll follow up with you this week to help you get connected with a life group. Why? Because it matters. Community matters. Building relationships matters because that's the way God made you to be, to relate like him. Which leads us to number four. As image bearers, we were made to live in a relationship with Jesus. We were made to live in a relationship with Jesus. Adam and Eve, they walked with God and everything was right and good in man's relationship with him. But the relationship was broken because of sin. Sin brought separation and distance between us and God. And because God is holy and man is sinful, we cannot be restored back to a right relationship with him. And so when we couldn't get to God, God comes to us in the person and work of Jesus who lived a perfect life that you and I couldn't live. And he died the death that we deserved. And he goes to the cross and he gladly dies in your place. And his blood was shed so that your sins might be forgiven. And he was laid in the ground, but he didn't stay dead. After three days, he comes back to life Easter morning and he is now alive. He is seated in heaven where he is ruling and reigning over all things and he is interceding on your behalf right now. You see, the view of the gospel is that you can get in on this. The relationship with God is available through faith in Jesus. Which leads us to our impact point and it's this. Here's what God's call is for us. Commit your life to following Jesus and loving his church. This is what you and I get to do for the rest of our lives. We follow Jesus and we love his church. We we connect with his church. We serve the church. We look for community and relationships all because Jesus who gladly and willingly went to the cross so that now you have access to the triune God and through faith in Jesus you don't have to approach him as some random God out in the sky you can call out to him like this that's the access you have through Jesus you go straight to your father in heaven who loves you and he made you in the image of God.